0: Last week I told you the story of the apple tree we planted in our backyard that had no roots. And I mentioned when I told you that story that there was a second apple tree. Uh, that tree fared a little bit better. It produced a few apples uh, the second year and the third year. But, but, but by the next year, it stopped producing fruit. And then the year after that, it didn't produce any leaves. And it just looked dead. So because of my previous experience with the other tree, first thing I did, I went up and I shook it to make sure that it was still in the ground. It was. Uh, But nothing happened the rest of the year. It just just didn't produce anything. So by the end of that year, I dug it out, and when I did, I discovered what the problem was. When we had moved into our yard or house several years ago, our backyard was filled with buckthorn. And so I spent the first few summers trying to get rid of what I thought to be all of the buckthorn. But you don't really get rid of buckthorn, you just kind of manage it. And apparently I hadn't managed it well enough because some buckthorn shoots had started to grow up around that apple tree. And when I dug it out, I saw that it seemed like those buckthorn roots had choked out that apple tree. And the reason I tell you that story is because there is a spiritual buckthorn that grows in the soil of our lives. And if we're not attentive to that buckthorn, What will happen is it will choke out what God was once producing fruit in our lives. And so we have to be attentive to what that spiritual buckthorn is. And that is the focus of the message today and the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Numbers chapter 13. That's where our scripture will be today, Numbers chapter 13. Uh, If you want to use one of the blue Bibles that we provide for you, it's found on page 206 of that blue Bible in your pew back. And uh, those of you who are joining us online, great to have you with us. And we would encourage you to have a Bible open as well so uh, you join us in the reading of God's word. Uh, As you are turning open to Numbers chapter 13, let me just set the stage for us. God has called the people of Israel to himself. Uh, He made promises through a man named Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and that eventually his descendants would live in the promised land, the land of Canaan. But that had been several hundred years uh, after that promise that the people of God were in slavery in Egypt. And so God raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses, who was to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, through the desert, and then eventually into the promised land. And so that has happened. So so Moses and and the hand of God has just performed miraculous events, and they are are there kind of going through. God has been providing for them every step of the way, and now they're right there in the middle of the desert, and they're preparing to step into the promised land. And it's right there we pick up the story in Numbers chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so that's what happens. So there are 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and they spend 40 days going into the land of Canaan and just investigating what's going on. So they go in and they check out the soil, they check out the produce, they see what the topography is like, and they also get a sense on who's living there and what the people are like and and maybe some of the challenges that they're going to be facing. And then they come back to the people and they report back to Moses and Aaron and and the whole group of the Israelites what they found. And their report, we pick up in verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. That just means that they were were giants, they were big people. Verse 30, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it and the people we saw there are of a great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. But what happened? I mean, here that the people of God have been receiving from God. That they've been receiving his provision, they've been receiving his power, they've been seeing his, his presence among them, and, 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 and they've been following faithfully God. I mean, there's some ups and downs, but generally they've been following him, and they get to this point, and they're about ready to step into the promised land, and after checking it out, they're like, we can't do this, we're out. And you go, what happened? Have you ever known a church that just seemed like everything was going really well with that church? Like they were producing fruit, a lot of people were coming to faith in Jesus, they were doing good things in the community, they were committed to overseas missions, like things just seemed like they were going well, and then it just seems like out of nowhere that church just falls apart. And you look and you go, what happened? Or maybe it's somebody that you know personally, it just seems like they kind of have everything together. Like Their family's great, seems like they have a a good faith background, professionally they're doing super well, and then all of a sudden it just seems like everything crumbles, and it all seems to fall apart. And you look at it and you go, what happened? What often happens in some of those moments, and what happened here, was they got into spiritual buckthorn. It grew up and it choked out what God was trying to do in and through them. Specifically, the the people of God in in this story got choked out by the spiritual buckthorn of self-reliance. They stopped thinking about what what it is that that we can receive from God, and they started to think about what is it that we need to achieve on our own strength and in our own effort. And that that spiritual buckthorn grows in the soil of our own lives, that sense of self-reliance. So how do we know? How do we know if if that sense of self-reliance is starting to grow in our own lives? Well, this scripture gives us here four signs that we need to be aware of that we are giving in to self-reliance. The first is that we become anxious with conflicting information. That's the first sign that we're giving in to a sense of self-reliance. And we see this in the story in verse 27, verse 27. And 28, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are very powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And so they're going, yeah, the, land, the land's good. It has a lot of fruit, but there's a lot of challenges in the land. And it's conflicting information, and it causes a sense of anxiety among the people. And that happens in our own lives. When we take a self-reliant approach, it's all about what we can achieve on our own strength and our own power. When when we find situations that maybe present seemingly conflicting informations, we become anxious about it. And so we look at a situation and we we say, you know, this would be a great project that we could do at work, and this would do a lot of good for our clients and and, and be a, a, a way to help move the mission of our organization forward. This is a good thing for us to do. So it's either going to be that, or this project could be a disaster. I mean, this, thing, this thing's a huge risk, and it could just be a mess. Or, or maybe we look at a relationship, and we think, hey, either this relationship is going to be so much better than my previous relationships, or this is going to end in heartache. Or maybe we're going to a new school. And we think either this is going to be the, the, the best move and I'm going to get involved in friends and I'm going to be able to, to maybe have a chance to play on some sports teams or this is going to be a disaster and, and it's, just, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. We fall into this either or thinking, especially with conflicting information. And the reason we do is because when we have a self-reliant approach, we're nervous about our ability to control things. And when we're invited to step into something that seems a little bit out of our control, we want to do anything we can to try to manage it. And so when when information is presented to us that's conflicting, we start to get anxious. It's a sign of self-reliance. The reality is we don't really live in an either-or world. We live in in a world, and oftentimes God invites us to step into things that are not either-or, but they're also So yeah, that that project at work may be a great thing for you to move the mission of your organization forward and help your clients, and also it may be a huge challenge, maybe the hardest thing you've ever done, and you're going to have to trust in God and not just yourself. Or that new school that you're interested in in going into, it may be a a great opportunity for you, and you might be able to thrive in that school, and also, it's going to be a challenge to have to go in and make new friends and reestablish relationships, and you're going to have to trust that God's going to provide for you, as opposed to try to do it yourself. Or that relationship may be one of the healthiest relationships that you could ever be part of, and also... God may need to do some work in your own life. You might need to change so that you can be in that relationship, and that relationship can be successful. But when we take a self-reliant approach, it's all about what I can achieve versus what I want to receive from God, we get anxious with conflicting information. And then the second sign is then we start to spill that anxiety all over other people. And we do that when we affect, infect others with our negativity. Infecting others with our negativity, Uh, we we see this in in verse 32. It says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And and oftentimes, when we're anxious about certain things, when we're anxious about making a decision, there's there's something that's just a little bit beyond ourselves, and we're a little bit nervous about how this is going to go. We we tend to let that anxiety spill out over other people. It's an incredible phenomenon that when you're in a group of people, and maybe you see this at work, maybe you see this in a friend group, maybe you've experienced this in your family, but when you're with a group of people and you need to make a decision, and sometimes that decision is a little bit vague or it's a little bit challenging, or or we have to decide are we gonna do this or this or what, how are we gonna move forward? Watch this phenomenon. If there's someone in that room who becomes very anxious about that decision, for just a moment, that person temporarily becomes the most powerful person in that room. Their anxiety can just cause everybody else to stop with the decision. They tend to look at the person who's really anxious about it, and for just a moment, that person becomes the most powerful person. That's what's happening here. You have 10 of the 12 spies who are anxious about what's going on, and they're able to basically take that anxiety and spread it to the entire Israelite community. This is just good old-fashioned gossip. That's what's going on with this story. And the reason that that happens and the reason that we tend to, to lean in to spread that negative news is because, again, we feel a little bit out of control. Situation's a little bit too big for us. We can't manage it ourselves. So, in the sense of feeling like we're out of control, I can at least control this narrative. I can at least try to persuade this room. I can at least try to delay this decision. And the reason we, we, we give in to those things, the reason we just we oftentimes will give in to gossip is it feels like we can control something in the midst of what is uncontrolled. But so often, it just destroys the work that God wants us to receive. And not only do we spread that negativity toward other people, but the third sign is that we then inflate the challenge. And we see this at the end of verse 32. So not only do they give a bad report about the land that they had explored, they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of a great size. Well, the land didn't devour people, all right? They made that up. That's just a little bit of an extension. So why are they doing that? Why are they saying that the land was devouring people? Because again, when we have a self-reliant attitude towards something, and we're deciding that I don't know if I'm going to step into what God has for me. I don't know that I'm going to take that challenge. I don't know that we're going to move forward with that. We need to psychologically ease that burden. And so what we do is we inflate the challenge. And and so all of a sudden, the challenge becomes so big that no one would, in their reasonable mind, expect us to go forward with it. And so we say things like, listen, nobody could get an A in that class. I mean, look how hard it is. The the teacher is just completely unreasonable. Or nobody could be successful with a boss like my boss. Everybody would expect me to quit. Or nobody could love those neighbors and be kind to them. Do you you see what they're doing? Nobody would expect us to do that. We just, we inflate the challenge. So psychologically, when we walk away from it, we feel better about it. It's a sign of self-reliance. And then unfortunately, and here's what happens when we do these things, the fourth and the final sign is then we start to see ourselves as inadequate. And that's probably the saddest part of this whole story, is how it ends. Verse 33, we saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. But if you know the rest of the story, the people who lived in that land did not view the Israelites as little grasshoppers. They were actually terrified of the Israelites. Not because of their size, not because of their skills, not because of their strength. They were terrified of the Israelites because of their God. Because they said, the God that is with them split open the sea and they walked through on dry land. If that God is for them, who could stand against them? That's what the people of, of the land thought about the Israelites, but the Israelites themselves didn't see it that way. What happened? It all became about their own abilities sense of self-reliance. And they missed what God wanted them to receive. I've noticed a similar trend in, with Christians. And with Christianity today, we, we have a tendency to give in to the same temptation because that spiritual buckthorn, it grows in the soil of our own lives. And so not at Wooddale, but in other churches and, and maybe some, some other, other people that are out there, maybe, maybe prominent voices in, in the Christian area or uh, other churches that, that are kind of seeing what's happening around us with our world and some of the challenges that we are indeed facing, and we are indeed facing challenges. But what's happening is, is that there's this sense of self-reliance that is starting to take over, and so you're seeing that, that Christians today, some Christians today are becoming anxious about conflicting information. They're hearing reports about how people are coming to faith in Jesus and there, there's renewals and, and, and returns to, to, to Christianity and to following Jesus that are happening on college campuses and global missions are starting to expand and, and more people around the world are, are meeting Jesus for the first time, but also they're, they're hearing these stories about how attendance at church is dropping, about how religious affiliation is at an all-time low in the United States. About how giving to church is down, and it's probably going to drop another 30%, and many churches are going to close, and it doesn't seem like we're ever going to return. and I mean, Christianity is just going to go off the cliff, and, and, and it's, it's just going to, it's going to fall apart. And they're hearing those stories, and instead of having an and-also mindset, it's, well, which one is it? They get anxious about that. And then in the midst of that anxiety, they, they want to affect others with that negativity. And so what starts to happen is you have certain people that, you know, you'll have a situation that will occur, you know, three states over in one school district, totally unrelated to any of our day-to-day lives, but but there's this one story and it starts to go viral on the news and then everybody spreads that story and we start sharing all the negative stories as opposed to all the positive stories about what God's doing. And so then what happens is there starts to become this, this narrative that begins to build where the challenge just starts to become inflated. And then we start saying things like, it's, it's never been this bad. It's the worst it's ever been. It's never going to get better. How in the world could anybody be able to do ministry? How could we ever grow a church? How could we ever see the gospel move forward? How could we ever be expected to impact and influence culture? How, how could this ever happen? And the danger with all of that attitude is eventually, if that grows and persists, folks, what's going to happen is we're going to see ourselves as inadequate. And then we're just going to say, we're out of here. We don't want to do this. We we can't be effective here. And so we're we're just hoping that we're going to take our Bible and we're going to go home. And we're going to try to huddle up and maybe we can bring some of our kids and and our loved ones around us. And we're just going to hang on. And I think that if Joshua and Caleb were here. Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies. Two two of the twelve. I think if Joshua and Caleb were here. They would say to us, don't focus on the problems. Focus on the promise. Don't get upset about all the problems that you're facing. Remember the promise. For the people of Israel, what was the promise? The promise was that God said, go check out the land in verse 2 that I am giving to the Israelites. It was already a done deal. God said, the promise is, this is your land. I I gave that promise to Abraham. It's now your moment to fill it. The reason he sent them into the promised land wasn't to get nervous. It was to go check out what God was giving to them to be prepared for it. And they totally missed the promise. So what's the promise for us today? I mean, the promise for them was to go into the promised land, but what is it for us today? Well, Jesus gives this incredible promise to us about his church. Well, one day, Jesus was out with his disciples, and he asked them a question. He said, hey, who do people say that I am? And so they tried to give some answers, and, and then Jesus got a little bit more personal, and he said, but who do you say I am? It's a great question. And they said, well, I, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, and then Peter speaks up. And he says, you are the Messiah. That just means Savior. Son of the living God. You're the Savior. You're, you're God in the flesh. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, blessed are you because God revealed that to you, Peter. God let you know that that's who I am. And then he goes on to say this. And, and just he gives us this amazing promise that we need to hold on to in Matthew 16. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, and, and the rock that he's referring to there it isn't necessarily Peter, although there's a play on words there with the Greek word of, of Peter and his name. But what he's saying is the rock is the confession about who Jesus is that he's the Son of God, that he's the Savior. It's on that confession of who Jesus is. Jesus says this I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the promise. I think that's a pretty good promise for these days, don't you think? That's a great promise. And the promise that Jesus gives is that he will build his church. What, what that means for us is a few things. First, it means that Jesus is the one who builds his church. And he builds his church, not our church. So Jesus isn't taking requests on what the church should look or feel like. It's up to him doesn't matter who the senior pastor of a church is. Jesus is always the head of the church. Jesus is the head of this church, and he's the one who builds it. He will build his church. The other implication of this is that he's the one that does the work. We don't do it. We don't build his church. Now, he allows us to participate. He invites us to join him, to receive what he's doing. But it's not like Jesus is sitting around waiting for us to get our act together so he can move forward. He's already building his church. He always has been. The invitation is just if we'll join him. He's the one that does the work. We don't have to achieve it. We just have to receive it. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it which means it doesn't matter, all the problems that are out there, they can't stand in the way of Jesus' church. That's good news for us. Here's the thing about gates. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates don't advance. All gates do is gates are stationary and they keep some people out and they keep some people in. That's all gates do. So when you hear people talk about how there's this anti-Christian movement that is growing in our world, or if you hear people say that it's worse than it's ever been, or we're losing ground, that is theologically not true. Because when we fell away from God, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we felt we kicked God out. We said, God, we want to do this our own way. We don't need you. We'll take it from here. Thanks. And thankfully, God didn't fully remove his hand. Otherwise, we all would have perished. But we kick God out, and we continue to kick God out. And that's the problem. The world has been lost, but, but God has been on a, on a plan to redeem us. And so the only thing that is advancing is his kingdom. His kingdom is coming life by life, moment by moment. He is, he is the one that is taking ground, and hell cannot stop it. That is good news for us. So what's that mean for us in terms of... You know, who we are as a church and, and how we move forward with that promise. I've been thinking about the year 2050, which I know is in the future a little ways. But I've been thinking about the year 2050. And here's why I've been thinking about 2050. The year 2020 was a really difficult year for the Twin Cities. It was a difficult year for everybody, but it was especially difficult for us in the Twin Cities. Because in addition to all the other problems that we were facing, we had this racial tension that then exploded into the world, and everyone got a chance to view us as the epicenter of of, of so much of that. And literally, quite literally, our city was on fire. That's 2020. What if 30 years later, that's like a generation later, What, what if 30 years later, the Twin Cities is completely different? What if by 2050, when people think of Minneapolis, they think that's the place of hope and opportunity? What if by the year 2050, people are, are talking about, like, what happened in Minneapolis? What happened in St. Paul? What happened in the Twin Cities? Like, people want to live there. Like, there's opportunities. Like, it's a great place to raise a family. Like, it, it's a very safe environment. It's, it's very healthy. There's great education. It's great support systems. It's, it, it, it's thriving. It, people people are, are wanting to move to Minneapolis. Like, I don't get it. It's cold there. Like, why do they want to live there? And they started investigating. What happened? How did Minneapolis be, become this way? Why is it known as the place of hope and opportunity in, in America? What, what happened to the Twin Cities? And what if they find out it wasn't a policy, it wasn't a bunch of programs? What it was was a group of churches that actually believed in the promise of God. A group of churches that came together and said, Jesus wants to build his church and hell can't stop it and we're going to receive that promise and, and, and join him in his mission. And a group of churches that are faithful to God's word. A group of churches that that believe that God's vision for humanity is better than our own vision for humanity. And a group of churches that that in love but in truth will proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly. And challenge what needs to be challenged and and encourage what needs to be encouraged. and, And to be faithful to God's word. And a church that will then love their neighbor like themselves. Even those with whom we disagree. And we'll serve our communities. And we'll take the kingdom values that God tells us that we ought to live by, and we will proclaim them, and we will live them, and we'll help our our neighbors experience them, and we will start to see transformation come, not only in our own lives and to our own families, but to our communities. Not not just because of Wooddale, because of Wooddale and other gospel-centered churches, but what if that was part of what God was inviting us to step into? You can hear that and you can go, okay, it sounds a little audacious. I'd be, mean, Kyle, don't you realize the problems that we're facing? And I would say, yeah. We need to be aware of them, but don't focus on the problems. Focus on the promise. And you go, okay, but, but how do we do that Really? I mean, even in our own personal lives, when we're facing with all of the the problems that we're up against, how do we focus on God's promise and and not on all of the problems? And again, I think if, if Joshua and Caleb were here, they would say it's relatively simple. Here's what you do. How do you stay focused on the promise? You look for the fruit. You look for the fruit. Because that's what Joshua and Caleb did. They came back from the land, the 40 days of checking out the land, and they're holding the fruit. And they're going, do you see the fruit? Like, yeah, there's, there's some big people that live there, but God will take care of it. Look at the fruit. The fruit tells us that God's promise is true. The fruit tells us that there's more of that to come. The fruit tells us that we can trust God. We don't have to trust ourselves. The fruit tells us that we should go. So we look for the fruit. Several weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of our global partners. It's a guy named Anthony. And he's the leader of an organization called Joya. They do work in Calcutta, India. And they're located in a neighborhood called Sonagachi. If you were to Google Sonagachi, what you would find is that Sonagachi is known as one of the largest red light districts in all of Asia. In fact, if you were to get in a cab in Calcutta and ask to go to Sonagachi, they would assume that you're going there for one reason and one reason only. There's over 10,000 people in Sanagachi who are stuck and trapped in human trafficking, basically enslaved. And so what Joya is doing is they're committed to holistic transformation there in that community. And, And so they started with an organization called Free Set. They've now changed their name to Joya, but they have a business as mission. And what they do is they employ people. And they give them an opportunity to have the dignity of a choice, that they don't have to be stuck in in trafficking, and they don't have to be part of the red light district. They can can have a job where they can have economic prosperity to get out of that. But they also recognize that a lot of these problems are, are multiple generations, and they're cycles, and so they're providing education and educational opportunities that other people would never otherwise be able to receive. So now they have hope and they have opportunity. And then they're providing health care to so many of the people because they've never been provided for this way, and legal services. Because so many of the people who are stuck in trafficking are held there because of some legal things that are going on in that country. And so they need lawyers and people who, who know the law to be able to help set them free legally. And so what they're doing is this holistic transformation for the entire community, in fact, when, when, when Joya wanted to introduce themselves or kind of reintroduce themselves to the city of Sanagachi, this is the building that they've been in, and this is where all of this work is, is happening, and it just looks like every other building that you would expect to see in the neighborhood of Sanagachi. And many of the people who are part of Joya, many of the, the women who have come out of trafficking, they said, we want to paint the building because we want a way to visually display to our community that we're going to bring transformation. So they painted the building. Here's what it looks like now that they painted it bright and vibrant and when you see the joy that you just you can't help but smile when you see that building that's the type of joy that they want to bring to sanagotchi and so i was telling anthony i was like man i was like what you are trying to do there in Sanagachi? i was like that's the vision of what i believe god is inviting us at wooddale church to do in the twin cities to bring a gospel transformation so this the twin cities is transformed for the gospel And Anthony said to me, he said, so that's the vision. I said, yeah, that's the vision. He said, no, Kyle, that's not the vision. He said, that's the only vision. Because when the gospel comes, it brings transformation. That's what the gospel does. That's true in our own lives, it's true in our own families, and it's true in our communities. We have to believe the promise. And so I asked Anthony, I said, but how do you do it? I said, Sanagotchi is such a difficult place and 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 how in the world can can you bring that type of transformation to that community? And because Anthony has heard this question a a number of times, he just smiled and he said to me, he said, Kyle, it's not that hard. He said, did you know that in order to transform a culture, all you need to do is to impact 5% of the population? I said, you impact 5% of the population and you start a movement that you won't be able to stop. And he said, and we're not going to stop at Joya until Sonagachi is no longer known as a red light district, but instead it is known as the place of hope and opportunity in Calcutta. And so much of what they're doing at Joya with that holistic service is what we just launched with the Family Resource Initiative. Right here at Wooddale Church to provide opportunities for people in our community to have their needs met so ultimately that they'll be able to experience the eternal transformation of Jesus. And Wooddale, I want to tell you, look for the fruit, it's starting to happen. Just a couple weeks ago, we, we had a couple that, that found out about the Family Resource Initiative on social media. They're not church people and, and weren't involved at Wooddale Church, weren't involved in any church. But they had some challenges in their life and they found on social media that we offered some support and some services for what they were going through. And so they started to come and and they found a little bit of hope and they found some help and then someone invited them to come on Sunday morning to a service. And because Jesus is the one who builds his church, not us, the Sunday that they happened to show up to for the very first time was a Sunday where we gave people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And that day both of them prayed to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and their lives are being transformed because Jesus is going to build his church. Do you see the fruit? Look for the fruit. It's the evidence that the promise is true, and we can trust it, and we can faithfully go forward. Well, I want to encourage you that God is at work in and through this church. I want you to know the fruit. I want you to see it. I want you to look for it. We're going to celebrate this at the annual meeting in a few weeks, but just to give you some highlights of what God has been doing in the last year here at Wooddale Church, I want to let you know that 186 people here locally at one of our campus locations have said yes to Jesus for the first time. They publicly professed their faith in Jesus. It's 186 people whose lives and eternities have been transformed. We also had 71 people that were baptized locally. Baptism, Baptism is not done for salvation. This is not a salvific moment, but when you're baptized, you are publicly professing that you're trusting Jesus and you're not trusting yourself, and that's a big step in our day and age. And so we celebrate that because it's evidence that God is doing something significant in their lives. That's locally, globally, in partnership with our 80 global partners, over 3,300 churches have been planted around the world. That's 3,300 villages that now have a faithful gospel witness to bring a gospel transformation, where not only are they teaching the truth, but widows and orphans are being taken care of and supported, and and they're about being the kingdom and bringing the kingdom's values. Do you see the fruits of what God is doing? And through all of those global partners, over 96,000 people have said yes to Jesus around the world. In the last year. And of those people, Wooddale, I'm so excited to say 18,000 of them have publicly professed their faith in baptism. (laughs) Do you see the fruit? Look for the fruit of what God is doing. It will give us confidence to not focus on the problems, but to stay focused on the promise that Jesus will build his church. But personally, how do you do this? Because the reality is there are some of us who are facing some pretty significant challenges right now. Financially, all you see is promises or problems. Your your marriage may be a problem, and it feels like an insurmountable thing that you just can't figure out. There may be some serious health issues that are going on, and it feels very problematic to you. Relationally, it feels like there's problem after problem after problem. School for you is just a problem. Every day, it's more problems. How in the world do you stay focused on the promise in the midst of a sea of problems? The promise that Jesus gives is not only will he build his church, the promise that Jesus gives to us is also found at the end of Matthew 28, where he tells us that he will be with us always until the end of the age. That if you've accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, he is with you and he will not leave you. And so in the midst of all of those problems, Christ is present with you. So how do you stay focused on that promise? What you do is you do what Joshua and Caleb did. You listen and look. I believe that God is calling us to be people who are defined by listening and looking, by listening to God's word, by saying this is the truth by which we live. Not our own opinions, not our own ideas, but it's God's word. And that we take God's word and we understand that this is God's vision for humanity and it is good, it is better than our vision. And we're going to follow it, we're going to obey it, we're going to live it, we're going to proclaim it because it's what God wants for us and it is best. And we're going to be bold about that and confident about that. We're going to listen to God's word and we're going to listen to where the spirit of God is calling us next because he's the one that's building his church. And then we're going to look for the evidence that God is building his church and that God is with us. Because when you're a person who listens to God's word and you look for the fruit, you're a person of hope. That's what the Twin Cities needs. That's what our world needs. It needs people of hope who are listening and who are looking. Because those are the people that are going to experience a gospel transformation. And those are the people that God is going to choose to bring a gospel transformation. Not because of what they achieved on their own effort, but because of what they received, because this is what God does. So, Wooddale, let's be people who listen and who look. Father, we come into your presence. Lord, we come into your presence, and we're just grateful for your word. Father, this text is so significant for us because it is your very voice. Lord, these words are not just old, outdated stories. Father, these these words are alive and they're active. And they're so practical and so relevant for the here and the now. Lord, we face a lot of challenges. And I just confess to you that we are so tempted to look to ourselves to solve them. Father, help us to trust in you. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I pray that that our confidence would not be in ourselves, but it would be in you. Father, I pray that that you would would make yourself so apparent to us. Lord, that we would know that you are at work among us. And Father, that that confidence, Lord, would lead us behind the gates of hell to bring your truth and your forgiveness and your redemption to those who are in desperate need of it. Father, that is true for us. We're in need of it. Lord, let us receive it from you and then help others to receive it from you as well. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.